Story twenty two of Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, nineteen o seven to nineteen o eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Agnew. Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, nineteen o seven to nineteen o eight. Story twenty two. The Promissory Note Ernest Duncan swung himself off the platform of David White's store and walked whistling up the street. Life seemed good to Ernest just then. Mr. White had given him a rise in salary that day and had told him that he was satisfied with him. Mr. White was not easy to please in the matter of clerks, and it had been with fear and trembling that Ernest had gone into his store six months before. He had thought himself fortunate to secure such a chance. His father had died the preceding year, leaving nothing in the way of worldly goods except the house he had lived in. For several years before his death he had been unable to do much work, and the finances of the little family had dwindled steadily. After his father's death Ernest, who had been going to school and expecting to go to college, found that he must go to work at once, instead, to support himself and his mother. If George Duncan had not left much of worldly wealth behind him, he at least bequeathed to his son the interest of a fine, upright character, and a reputation for honesty and integrity. None knew this better than David White, and it was on this account that he took Ernest as his clerk, over the heads of several other applicants who seemed to have a stronger pull. "'I don't know anything about you, Ernest,' he said bluntly. "'You're only sixteen, and you have not an ounce of real grit or worth in you. But it will be a queer thing if your father's son hasn't. I knew him all his life. A better man never lived, nor, before his accident, a smarter one. I'll give his son a chance, anyhow. If you take after your dad, you'll get on all right.' Ernest had not been in the store very long before Mr. White concluded, with a gratified chuckle, that he did take after his father. He was hard-working, conscientious, and obliging. Customers of all sorts, from the rough fishermen who came up from the harbour to the old Irish women from the back-country roads, liked him. Mr. White was satisfied. He was beginning to grow old. This lad had the makings of a good partner in him by and by. No hurry. He must serve his long apprenticeship first and prove his mettle. No use spoiling him by hinting at future partnerships before need was. That will all come in due time. David White was a shrewd man. Ernest was unconscious of his employer's plans regarding him, but he knew that he stood well with him, and, much to his surprise, he found that he liked the work and was beginning to take a personal interest and pleasure in the store. Hence he went home to tea on this particular afternoon with a buoyant step and a smiling eyes. It was a good world, and he was glad to be alive in it, glad to have work to do and a dear little mother to work for. Most of the folks who met him smiled in friendly fashion at the bright-eyed, frank-faced lad. Only old Jacob Patterson scowled grimly as he passed him, emitting merely a surly grunt in response to Ernest's greeting. 
but then old jacob patterson was noted as much for his surliness as for his miserliness nobody had ever heard him speak pleasantly to any one therefore his unfriendliness did not at all dash ernest's high spirits i'm sorry for him the lad thought he has no interest in life saving accumulating money he has no other pleasure or affection or ambition when he dies i don't suppose a single regret will follow him father died a poor man but what love and respect went with him to his grave ay and beyond it jacob patterson i'm sorry for you you have chosen the poorer part and you are a poor man in spite of your thousands ernest and his mother lived up on a hill at the end of a straggling village street the house was small old-fashioned one painted white set in the middle of a small but beautiful lawn george duncan during the last rather helpless years of his life had devoted himself to the cultivation of flowers shrubs and trees and as a result his lawn was the prettiest in conway ernest worked hard in his spare moments to keep it looking as well as in his father's lifetime for he loved his little home dearly and was proud of its beauty he ran gaily into the sitting-room tea ready lady mother i'm hungry as a wolf good news gives one an appetite mr white has raised my salary a couple of dollars per week we must celebrate the event somehow this evening what do you say to a sail on the river and an ice-cream at taylor's afterwards when a little woman can't outlive her schoolgirl hankering for ice-cream why mother that's the matter mother dear mrs duncan had been standing before the window with her back to the room when ernest entered when she turned he saw that she had been crying oh ernest she said brokenly jacob patterson has just been here and he says he says what has that old miser been saying to trouble you demanded ernest angrily taking her hands in his he says he holds your father's promissory note for nine hundred dollars overdue for several years answered mrs duncan yes and he showed me the note ernest father's promissory note for nine hundred exclaimed ernest in bewilderment but father paid that note to james patterson five years ago mother just before his accident didn't you tell me he did yes he did said mrs duncan but then where is it interrupted ernest father would have kept the receipted note of course we must look among his papers you won't find it there ernest we we don't know where the note is it must be lost lost that is unfortunate but you say that jacob patterson showed you a promissory note of father still in existence how can that be it can't possibly be the note he paid and there couldn't have been another note what we know nothing of i understand how this note came to be in jacob patterson's possession said mrs duncan more firmly but he laughed in my face when i told him i must tell you the whole story ernest but sit down and get your tea first i haven't any appetite for tea now mother said ernest soberly let me hear the whole truth about the matter seven years ago your father gave his note to old james patterson 
Jacob's brother, said Mrs. Duncan. It was for nine hundred dollars. Two years afterwards, the note fell due, and he paid James Patterson the full amount with interest. I remember the day well. I have only too good reason to. I went up to the Patterson place in the afternoon with the money. It was a very hot day. James Patterson receipted the note and gave it to your father. Your father always remembered that much. He was also sure that he had a note with him when he left the house. He then went over to see Paul St. Clair. A thunderstorm came up while he was on the road. Then, as you know, Ernest, just as he turned in at Paul St. Clair's gate, the lightning flash struck and stunned him. It was weeks before he came to himself at all. He never did come completely to himself again. When, weeks afterwards, I thought of the note and asked him about it. We could not find it, and search as we did, we never found it. Your father could never remember what he did with it when he left James Patterson's. Neither Mr. Sinclair nor his wife could recollect seeing anything of it at the time of the accident. James Patterson had left for California that very morning after, and never came back. We did not worry much about the loss of the note then. It did not seem of much moment, and your father was not in a condition to be troubled about the matter. But, Mother, this note that Jacob Patterson holds, I don't understand about this. I'm coming to that. I remember distinctly that on the evening when your father came home after signing the note, he said that James Patterson drew up a note and he signed it. But just as he did so, the old man's pet cat, which was sitting on the table, upset an ink bottle and the ink ran all over the table and stained one end of the note. Old James Patterson was the fussiest man who ever lived and a stickler for neatness. Tut, tut, he said, this won't do. Here, I'll draw up another note and tear this blotted one up. He did so, and your father signed it. He always supposed James Patterson destroyed the first one, and certainly he must have intended to, for there never was an honester man. But he must have neglected to do so, for Ernest, it was that blotted note Jacob Patterson showed me today. He said he found it among his brother's papers. I suppose it has been in the desk up to the Patterson place ever since James went to California. He died last winter, and Jacob is his sole heir. Ernest, that note with the compound interest on it for seven years amounts to over eleven hundred dollars. How can we pay it? I'm afraid this is a very serious business, mother, said Ernest, rising and pacing the floor with agitated strides. We shall have to pay the note if we cannot find the other, and even if we could, perhaps. Your story of the drawing up of the second note would not be worth anything as evidence in a court of law, and we have nothing to hope from Jacob Patterson's clemency. No doubt he believes that he really holds father's unpaid note. He is not a dishonest man. In fact, he rather prides himself on having made all his money honestly. He will exact every penny of the debt. The first thing to do is to have another thorough search for the lost note, although I'm afraid that it is a forlorn hope it proved to be. The note did not turn up. Old Jacob Patterson proved obdurate. He laughed to scorn the tale of the blotted note and, indeed, 
Ernest sadly admitted to himself that it was not a story anybody would be in a hurry to believe. "'There's nothing for it but to sell our house and pay the debt, mother,' he said at last. Ernest had grown old in the days that had followed Jacob Patterson's demand. His boyish face was pale and haggard. "'Jacob Patterson will take the case into the law courts if we don't settle at once. Mr. White offered to lend me the money on a mortgage on the place, but I could never pay the interest out of my salary when we have nothing else to live on. I would only get further and further behind. I'm not afraid of hard work, but I dare not borrow money with so little prospect of ever being able to repay it. We must sell the place and rent that little four-roomed cottage of Mr. Percy's down by the river to live in. Oh, mother, it half kills me to think that you're being turned out of your home like this. It was a bitter thing for Mrs. Duncan also. But for Ernest's sake she concealed her feelings and affected cheerfulness. The house and lot were sold, Mr. White being the purchaser thereof, and Ernest and his mother removed to a little riverside cottage with such of their household belongings as had not also been sold to make up the required sum. Even then, Ernest had to borrow two hundred dollars from Mr. White, and he foresaw that the repayal of this sum would cost him much self-denial and privation. It would be necessary to cut their modest expenses down severely. For himself, Ernest did not mind, but it hurt him keenly that his mother should lack the little luxuries and comforts to which she had been accustomed. He saw, too, in spite of her efforts to hide it, that leaving her old home was a terrible blow to her. Although Ernest felt bitter and disheartened, his step lacked spring and his face its smile, he did his work with dogged faithfulness, but he no longer found pleasure in it. He knew that his mother secretly pined after her lost home where she had gone as a bride, and the knowledge rendered him very unhappy. Paul Sinclair, his father's friend and cousin, died that winter, leaving two small children. His wife had died the previous year. When his business affairs came to be settled, they were found to be sadly involved. There were debts on all sides, and it was soon only too evident that nothing was left for the little boys. They were homeless and penniless. "'What will become of them, poor little fellows?' said Mrs. Duncan, pityingly. "'We are their only relatives, Ernest. We must give them a home, at least.' "'Mother, how can we?' exclaimed Ernest. "'We are so poor. It's as much as we can do to get along now.' And there is that two hundred to pay to Mr. White. I'm sorry for Danny and Frank, but I don't see how we can possibly do anything for them. Mrs. Duncan sighed. I know it isn't right to ask you to add to your burden, she said wistfully. It is of you I'm thinking, mother, said Ernest tenderly. I can't have your burden added to. You deny yourself too much and work too hard now. What would it be if you took the care of those children upon yourself? Don't think of me, Ernest, said Mrs. Duncan eagerly. I wouldn't mind. I'd be glad to do anything I could for them, poor little souls. Their father was your father's best friend, and I feel as if it were our duty to do all we can for them. 
they're such little fellows who knows how they would be treated if they were taken by strangers and they'd most likely be separated and that would be a shame but i leave it to you to decide ernest it is your right for the heaviest part will fall on you ernest did not decide at once for a week he thought the matter over weighing pros and cons carefully to take the two sinclair boys meant a double portion of toil and self-denial had he enough to bear now but on the other side was it not his duty nay his privilege to help the children if he could in the end he said to his mother we'll take the little fellows mother i'll do the best i can for them we'll manage a corner and crust for them so danny and frank sinclair came to the little cottage frank was eight and danny six and they were small and lively and mischievous they worshipped mrs duncan and thought ernest the finest fellow in the world when his birthday came round in march the two little chaps put their heads together in grave consultation as to what they could give him you know he gave us presents on our birthdays said frank so we must give him something i'll give him my pocket-knife said danny taking the somewhat battered and loose-jointed affair from his pocket and gazing at it affectionately give him one of papa's books said frank that pretty one with the red covers and the gold letters a few of mr sinclair's books had been saved for the boys and were stored in a little box in their room the book frank referred to was an old history of the turks and its gay cover was probably the best of it since its contents were of no particular merit on ernest's birthday both boys gave him their offerings after breakfast pocket-knife here's a pocket-knife for you said danny graciously it's a bully pocket-knife it'll cut real well if you hold it dust the right way i'll show you and here's a book for you said frank it's a real pretty book and i guess it's pretty interesting reading too it's all about the turks ernest accepted both gifts gravely and after the children had gone out he and his mother had a hearty laugh the dear kind-hearted little lads said mrs duncan it must have been a real sacrifice on danny's part to give you his beloved pocket-knife i was afraid you were going to refuse it at the first and that would have hurt his little feelings terribly i don't think the history of the turks will keep you burning the midnight oil i remember that book of old i could never forget that gorgeous cover mr sinclair lent it to your father once and he said it was an absolute trash why ernest what's the matter ernest had been turning the book's leaves over carelessly suddenly he sprang to his feet with an exclamation his face turning white as marble mother he gasped holding out a yellowed slip of paper look it's the lost promissory note mother and son looked at each other for a moment then mrs duncan began to laugh and cry together your father took the book with him when he went to pay the note she said he intended to return it to mr sinclair i remember seeing the gleam of the red binding in his hand as he went out of the gate he must have slipped the note into it 
and suppose the book has never been opened since oh ernest do you think will jacob patterson i don't know mother i must see mr white about this don't be too sanguine this doesn't prove that the note jacob patterson found wasn't the genuine note also you know that is i don't think it would serve as proof in law we'll have to leave it to his sense of justice if he refuses to refund the money i'm afraid we can't compel him to do so but jacob patterson did not any longer refuse belief to mrs patterson's story of the blotted note he was a harsh miserly man but he prided himself on his strict honesty he had been fairly well acquainted with his brother's business transactions and knew that george duncan had given him only one promissory note i'll admit ma'am since the receipted note has turned up that your story about the blotted one must be true he said surlily i'll pay your money back nobody can ever say jacob patterson cheated i took what i believe to be my due since i'm convinced it wasn't i'll hand every penny over though mind you you couldn't make me do it by law it's my honesty ma'am it's my honesty since jacob patterson was so well satisfied with the fibre of his honesty neither mrs duncan nor ernest was disposed to quarrel with it mr white readily agreed to sell the old duncan place back to them and by spring they were settled again in their beloved little home danny and frank were with them of course we can't be too good to them mother said ernest we really owe all our happiness to them yes but ernest if you had not consented to take the homeless little lads in their time of need this wouldn't have come about i've been well rewarded mother said ernest quietly but even if nothing of the sort had happened i would be glad that i did the best i could for frank and danny i'm ashamed to think that i was unwilling to do it at first if it hadn't been for what you said i wouldn't have so it is to your unselfishness we have to thank for it all mother dear end of the promissory note recording by mary agnew